Hi, my name is Anita Johnson, and if you like what you hear on Making Contact, now is the time to go to radioproject.org, click the big red-hearted donate button at the top of the page, and help us get community voices heard. Thanks, and here's this week's show. You're listening to Making Contact. You know what, right now, breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Pauline Chu is in for The closing bell of the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. Shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. Just billion dollars in market value today alone. The number is even more dramatic when you're looking at the uh, company over a three-month period. There it is, down 8.9 billion, roughly 68 percent. This month marks 10 years since the stock market crash of 2008. The crash started with the failure of big banks like Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. We learned that these massive investment banks have been playing dice with our money, real money and the speculative bubble that they built came crashing down around them, taking millions of people's homes and savings with it. And yet, the banks that caused the problems, they were bailed out. Bailed out to the tune of trillions of dollars. Meanwhile, the rest of us were left to fend for ourselves. And that's been especially catastrophic for African Americans. We lost a third of our wealth after the Great Recession one-third of our wealth, and we have not come back from that. I'm Salima Hamarani, and this is Making Contact. As we look back on the crisis, we talked to Julianne Malvo, an economist, author, social and political commentator, about how the stock market crash has had lingering effects on poor people, people of color, and especially Black people. But first, we hear from Nomi Prinz about her book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Nomi Prince once worked at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and Chase Manhattan Bank. And with her insider perspective, she gives us a history of the bailout and how it's affected countries around the world. This is not a book about Russia. It's not a book about the Bob Mueller investigation. Trump does show up in the book. That, that I do have to say. Actually, as I was handing in the book um, after the elections had happened, I wound up having to do a lot of rewrites on some of the chapters that I had done in the countries and the regions to which I had gone throughout the world because what I believed in the book, which was that actual economic anxiety, this idea that we don't have control because we don't over our own financial destinies, over our own economy, because it's being sort of controlled by uh, different institutions, certain very elite groups of people, and their conversations and actions amongst themselves has manifested in in Trump. And it's not just here in the United States that that has been what our political system has evolved into. It's in other countries throughout the world. It's the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. It's the overthrowing of the Workers' Party in Brazil. So I will try to cover all of that as well. I want to start, though, because I I know that the concept of central banking and central bankers, for those of you who might not go about thinking about what central banks are and what they do on a regular basis, let me just bring it down to really basic level. Central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve in the United States, which is the central bank of the United States, it was created in 1913 by the Federal Reserve Act um, when Woodrow Wilson was president. It came out of 
a panic, a crisis that had occurred in New York City in 1907. And during that panic, what had happened, as happens in finance, is a bunch of people decided to rig the markets. It was in copper prices. And they said, you know, if we buy up a lot of copper, sort of on the sly, then the prices are going to go up. We're going to sell it up here, and then it's going to come crashing down, and we'll keep doing that again. But what happened was people were wise to this in the system, in the market in Wall Street at the time. They called these copper speculators out. But the copper speculators happened to be on the boards of banks that really worked with real people. And so those banks started to face the prospect of failing. So one banker at the time, a guy named J.P. Morgan, who ran a bank called the Morgan Bank, which is now part of J.P. Morgan Chase, which is the largest bank in the United States. So this stuff has very very big historical legs, said, you know what, I will save New York, I will save Wall Street, I will save the banks, so that this panic doesn't hurt the rest of the country. I just need someone else's money to do that with. Um, and so he goes to Teddy Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, or he communicated with him, he stayed in New York, and he said, you know, I, I, I need some help. So the Treasury Department says, okay, here's $25 million. Just bail out the right banks, fix it. So J.P. Morgan convenes a whole bunch of people in his library really late at night. He talks about this. They decide they're going to save themselves with the government's money. They don't save the banks that were dealing with actual people and depositors. Those fail. They save themselves, but they decide we need something else going forward where if the government doesn't have enough money and there's a big crisis, we have some other recourse. So that's ultimately the concept of how the Federal Reserve was created. It, it was a real situation where real bankers at the top of the chain at the time decided we really need money in the case of an emergency to be available to us without having to like deal with conversations with the president or conversations with the treasury secretary or meetings in Congress where it is just available as and when we need it. And so that was ultimately the language that became the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And there was a clause in that act that beyond the Federal Reserve being the provider, the lender of last resort to the banking system, to the major banks on Wall Street, that the Federal Reserve also, in a really bad emergency, there's an emergency clause again, would be able to do whatever they needed to do to make sure the system was safe. They've done it over the years in very minor ways and in smaller ways, but in the wake of this particular financial crisis of 2008, which I believe is ongoing, is they provided not just 100 million, not just 100 billion, but several trillion dollars, at one point 29 trillion dollars of conjured money, money that wasn't made anywhere, it wasn't appropriated, it wasn't discussed, it wasn't budgeted, no one gave them a, a limit, of money to subsidize the banking system in the beginning of the crisis. Today, there is still four and a half trillion dollars of conjured money just in the United States from the Federal Reserve available to the US banks for the most part and certain of their counterparts in other, in other countries as well that is literally just subsidizing the banking system. So over four and a half trillion dollars still today, which we don't really talk about, is available to subsidize them. Four and a half trillion dollars could subsidize a lot of stuff in the real economy, but it doesn't. It was conjured by the Fed electronically to provide to the banking system in return for some of the toxic assets, this goes back to 10 years ago, that the banking system produced out of people's mortgages 
for which they also lent to other banks that failed along the way money to buy more toxic assets, there were, at one point, a half a trillion dollars worth of subprime mortgages before the crisis in the country. And what the major banks did was they scooped them up and they created from those half a trillion dollars of mortgages $14 trillion of toxic assets. So they basically multiplied it by a lot. And then they said, well, we have these assets. We want to sell them because that's how we make money. They basically decided, okay, we're going to lend money to anyone who we want to buy these assets. So it's like they were in charge of the garage sale where in the back of the garage was like old tires and old air pumps and old bicycles and things that didn't work and that were rusty. And they said, you know what? We're going to just sort of spruce them up, spray some paint on them, sell them out. And we're also going to lend you money to buy them. So what they did was not only did they sell these assets around the world, and this is where the world comes in, um, but they basically lent money as well. And it was the biggest banks that did this because the smaller banks weren't in this game nor would they have had the money to lend because they were basically doing things like you know, lending to their communities and their localities and so forth. But the big banks, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, to lesser extent Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and so forth, they were able to manufacture these assets and the ones that had the most deposits in their possession were also able to lend money out with these deposits as collateral. So the entire system is currently being supported by not a little bailout that happened 10 years ago that the government okayed, not $700 billion that was repaid, but multiple trillions of dollars. Four and a half trillion here, 21 trillion throughout the world. So if we look at a combination of the Federal Reserve here in the United States, the European Central Bank in Europe, the Bank of Japan in Japan, the Bank of England in the UK, and so forth, have collectively colluded to dump $21 billion, trillion dollars of conjured money into the markets to basically lift the banking system, make them look better, help to repay all of the stuff that they created, and also that has also lifted all the stock markets. So all this artificial conjure money has gone into this sort of bubble right now that has lifted all of the markets. But in the meantime, lots of things happened along the way, and that's really where I'm going to go next in terms of the travels that I went on to write this book and look at what's happened in the last 10 years since the financial crisis throughout different areas in the world. Because not every country was colluding with the Fed. Not every country was simply doing what U.S. policy dictated for it to do. And, and what I did was I went to different areas around the world, again, that had different perspectives on the monetary policy that, that the U.S. did and what they were saying and how that has shifted their mentalities. And one of the first places I went to and I spent a lot of time in was Mexico. But I was at a, a breakfast in Monterrey, Mexico, which is the industrial city in Mexico, one of the main three cities. Um, and I was sitting having this breakfast with the former uh, number two guy at the Central Bank of Mexico, Banco de Mexico. And we're talking, and this is a couple years ago, and, and he's saying, you know, that whole 2008 thing that the Federal Reserve did, that's really not going to end well, and it really concerns me. It concerned me when I was there. He's an older guy. It concerned me when I was there. It's concerned me since I've been there, and it's concerned a lot of us um, in Banco de Mexico. Because when you create and conjure money to basically like reward the institutions and the individuals that screwed up the entire economy, that's, that's not really good policy. 
So, so, um, so we we're talking about that, but it wasn't just him. So, there, so, so a fellow was um, in 2008, head of the Banco de Mexico. His name was Guillermo Ortiz. And he had been involved in Mexico during the 1994 tequila crisis and working with restructuring the banks there. And he had seen things decimated. And he'd seen how it impacted the, the country. And he, had, he, he really was kind of of the opinion that the regulation of the U.S. banks was really the, the cause of what was what became a major global economic crisis. And that's because the Federal Reserve, in addition to being the lender of last resort, is supposed to be the regulator of the banking system. Theoretically, it is supposed to say, you know what, these sort of false mortgages, these sort of like bad toxic assets, these derivatives, all this money that's sort of boosting up the financial system for things that don't have the value that banks actually say they do or that rating agencies that rate the value of this stuff say they do, that could end very badly. So he goes up to meet with Ben Bernanke, who was the head of um, the Fed at the time, um, and he basically says, look, if you do what I think you're going to do, I've seen this, it doesn't end well, and it also um, can really sort of cripple things for, for many years to come. And Ben Bernanke completely ignores him. Guillermo Ortiz actually has political ramifications from having critiqued the United States' monetary policy. He doesn't get reappointed um, to be head of Bangladesh, New Mexico from the next um, administration in Mexico. Um, he gets replaced by a guy named Augustin Karstins. Um, was educated in the U.S., is closer to Ben Bernanke, is closer to the sort of U.S. policy of things, and is just sort of more palatable at a time where crisis is still happening, when this policy is still going on of cheap money and conjuring money into the banking system. Then in the beginning, he's actually really into what Ben Bernanke is saying. Yeah, we should have cheap money. We should make it available to the system, but the system is still not stable. And this was several years into the aftermath of the financial crisis. But what happens when you conjure money um, in economies that are sort of more real and, and have less speculation at the top, and they, they tend to have prices actually rise. So inflation, which hasn't set in here, set in in Mexico. You know, food prices were going up anywhere. There was problems going on. And if rates were too low, it was putting too much money into the system at the top. It was raising prices. That was becoming hard for actual real people and small businesses to pay for. And so Karstens even decided this was a bad policy. And ultimately, he defies the Fed to start to protect their own economy. What the Fed has done is not being ignored by the rest of the world. It is being ignored by politics here. It's being embraced by Wall Street here. Um, but the rest of the world has, has sort of caught on to this and, and was warning um, about what could happen if you dump too much money just that goes to the top and it doesn't go to the bottom and you create this sort of artificial market system that can collapse at any point in time if the money is taken away, which the Fed doesn't want to do. But if it did happen, there would be a collapse because right now the subsidy is way too high. You were just listening to Nomi Prince talking about her new book, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Thanks to KPFA for recording her talk. You're listening to Making Contact. To listen to any past shows, visit www.radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast, get our updates, or support our work at radioproject.org. We heard from Nomi Prinz in the first half of the show, talking about the lingering effects of the crash of 2008 on the banking system. But when looking back over the past 10 years, I started to wonder about the crash and its effect on people, especially people of color. So I sat down with Julianne Malveaux. She's an economist and commentator. 
Here's what she says about how the market crash in 2008 affected some of us unequally. Okay, a couple things. First thing, we had a series of banks were described as too big to fail. And therefore, they got props, they got money. Uh, but there were also a series of black-owned banks that were too small to notice. And so they actually failed. So that's a double standard, frankly. I'll tell you why. Uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation did a study of black-owned banks and found that 66% of the home loans that went from black-owned banks went to black people. On the other hand, fewer than 1% of the home loans from Wells Fargo, Bank of America, etc., went to black people. Now, secondly, the reason, according to many legislators, that these too-big-to-fail banks got money was because they were going to trickle this money down to communities. It didn't quite work that way. What instead happened is that the banks were able to pump up their stock prices, the banks were able to do more exploitation, but the people who were at the outside were still the outside looking in. And so we did not see in the aftermath of the Great Recession a bounce back for people at the bottom. Indeed, if you looked at some of the numbers, what you saw is that the top 10% gained 115% of their economic position. In other words, they were better off because of the recovery and its aftermath. But people at the bottom were worse off, even though there was a so-called economic recovery. So you talked about these black-owned banks, which I hadn't actually thought about at all, but also how how few loans went to black people in general to buy homes. But yet they were very affected by the crash, and it's been 10 years since that crash. And we rarely think about people of color and black people when we talk about how the crash has left permanent marks on our economy. What's dangerous about not focusing on race when remembering the market crash from 10 years ago? It's dangerous to assume that economic uh, fluctuations are race neutral. You have a population that's at the periphery of the economy and bankers who have exploited that. By that, I mean that almost half of the African-Americans who had subprime loans qualified for conventional loans. The difference between a subprime loan and a conventional loan is several percentage points or several hundred dollars a month. But then let's take it just a step further. 72% of white folks own their homes, compared to now only about 42% of African-Americans. The number of African-Americans who are homeowners went down after the Great Recession. When they lose their homes, they lose a footprint on the economy. And that number going down also meant that the wealth gap widened. And so if you have already marginalized a population, the market will work to their detriment. And that's why we have to pay attention to race. And I think this is so important because we've heard a lot about the racial wealth gap in these past few years. But to be clear, we're not just talking about earned income. We're talking about what you mentioned. We're talking about assets. So can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. If we look at income, we see about a 60% ratio, black income to white income. So, and that's been pretty steady. It goes up, it goes down a little bit. And if you go into certain occupations, you can get it as high as 90%. 
You're looking at lawyers as an example. But a wealth gap is not about what you earn. It's about what you keep. It's about what you're able to save, what you're able to invest, what kind of assets that you have. Now, why are those things different? First of all, because African-Americans are less likely to be the beneficiaries of inherited wealth. We were other people's wealth. You look at the history of black folks in the economy, and we were for a very long time until 1864, other people's assets. And then when we fast forward, we're looking at the ability of public policy to preclude African-American accumulation. Many people think of lynching as being something about black men lusting after white women. But here's a real story. The first lynching that Ida B. Wells covered was a lynching that had something to do with economic envy. Why do I mention this? Because economic envy essentially has eroded the ability time and time again for black people to accumulate. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, sending Black Wall Street into flames. We have to look at the entirety of our history around how we show up in economic spaces and the many ways that we've been discouraged from accumulating. Which really makes me wonder about how economists think about this you know, term that they use, recovery. So since the crash, we've been told that there's been a recovery, that the financial system has, for the most part, recovered. But what does that mean exactly? Well, my question will be recovery for who and under what terms? Who actually is back where they were before we had the Great Recession? And who is prepared to withstand the next recession? Because we know that the economy is an oscillation. So who's protected when we have a downturn? And I would argue that if you look at income and wealth data, African-Americans are not protected. So you mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot, and this idea of like recession or boom and bust cycles in the market. And so there's this idea that a normal economy has these cycles where there's a boom and then there's a bust. And sometimes I wonder if that's just something that we're told. Does a market have to work that way? Here's a challenge. The way the rules have changed in a way to make it possible for the top 1% to capture more of the benefit of economic recovery. So it's not just that the economy booms and busts. We know this. This happens. Is it necessary? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm an MIT-trained economist, so basically economic cycles are something I learned. But here's what I do know. You can create public policy to protect people from some of the ups or downs of economic cycles. Some people are able to write off all their losses. Others are able to write off none. Some people are able to protect themselves, even through legislation, having set-asides for their industries. Others who are workers have no protections and no set-asides. And that's what the challenge is if you're talking about economic justice. And so how do we equalize that playing field so that everybody who makes an economic mistake gets the same ability to recover? It's a legislative issue. We have too many legislators who are extraordinarily sensitive to investors, to their donors, to people who are making money, and too few who are sensitive to people who are losing money. We don't have too many people in Congress, this is important, who are workers or who used to be workers. You can count them on two hands. 
So let's talk about some of the solutions you think would work. What else, what other types of solutions are there for this crisis? Well, I think that we have to ensure that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is alive and well. And I think that this midterm election gives us the opportunity to have the pushback in the legislative cycle, federal legislative cycle, to make sure that that agency is robust. I think that we need to continue to look at banks. One of the things that you started the conversation with was talking about banks. And because of the Republican Congress and Senate, we've loosened banking regulation as opposed to tightening it. Now, we need to go back in the other direction, looking at Dodd-Frank as well as Glass-Steagall and the ways that we've made big banks even more powerful when they need to be less powerful. We've seen banking chicanery. What about just opting out of the system? What about rebuilding Black Wall Street or credit unions or cooperative housing, cooperative banks? Is that a possibility? Well, there are some possibilities. I mean, opting out of the system, we live in this system. It's like saying you're, you're a fish and you're going to opt out of swimming. I don't think that that really works but so well. However, I do think that credit unions, I think that as an example, people, not just black people, but white people could put their money in black banks. White people who believe in economic justice can also take a stand by doing some of the stuff. There, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we can do off the grid But again, I was trained as a neoclassical economist. And so this has been a conversation I've had with students, friends and others over the years. They say, well, can we just create our own economy? And my answer is not if you want to live here. You can do some aspects of it. You can do, you know, some savings and loans. You can do some credit unions. We can consciously be more focused on investing in black people. But at the end of the day, Do you mean you're going to create another, are you going to create a parallel economy and then how? And that's a big question mark. It's an academic question mark for me and it's also a question mark personally for me because in terms of the work that I do, on one hand, I really do believe that, um, how can I put this? I believe that African-American people are at the periphery of the economy and we could do better with what we have. We don't have our fair share. The system at many levels is skewed against us. But do we opt out of the system or do we work to make a better system? And that's always the, the tension and the dilemma. Do we opt out and what does opting out mean? Do we try to make it better and what does that mean? Do we become co-opted as we try to make it better? Right. And then there's also the question of, you know, Black Wall Street was burned to the ground, as you mentioned, and I feel like that has left a mark in terms of how people see the possibilities in the future? Well, you know, one of the things I would want to share, which I think was fascinating as I've been doing this research for this book I'm working on, is that many black people's perceptions of black economic empowerment were shaped by the failure of the Freedmen's Bank. The Freedmen's Bank was the bank that the Congress created post-enslavement to help African-American people formerly enslaved people, save and invest. Now, the bank failed. At the very end of its life, Frederick Douglass was brought in to help stabilize the bank. But the bank failed. Many associate Douglass with that bank failure, and indeed in some of his diaries, he wrote about the angst and the pain that he felt from that bank failure. But here's what people don't write about. The board members of that bank were not black people. They were white people. 
And as opposed to being a simple savings bank, they chose to invest. White people took black people's money and put them into failing stuff. Um, And then the bank failed. And why is that important? Because you will still have people to this day talking about the failure of Freedom Bank as if it was a failure of black entrepreneurship. No, it was called White Folks Played Us Yet Again. Well, I think that's all we have time for, but thank you so much, Julianne. Sure, thank you. You were just listening to Julianne Malveaux, economist and political commentator. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact and RadioProject.org. Special thanks to KPFA for sharing the recording of Nomi Prince. And we want to hear from you. What are your reflections 10 years later? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact, and on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Vera Tykulsker, Sabine Blazin, and Lisa Rudman. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thank you for listening to Making Contact.